When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead. Take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Welcome to Celtic Speed, Ty Ray, Larry H. Russell, and Larry, 20 games to go. Thank goodness. It has been a long, long season. The team's played 60-plus games. It feels like 600. Well, we were prepared for it. No, I mean, I think even the most optimistic of Celtics fans, I know I was on with Matt Rory last week, and he was Mr. Optimistic at 36 wins, and... 36 wins for any team, let alone the Boston Celtics, is not a good season. And I think worst-case scenario was what we're seeing right now, and a lot of us expected it, but we're almost there. It's March 8th. We're setting the clocks back ahead tonight. That's always a big sign for spring. Once the season comes to an end, everything else just it, it, it'll flow in nicely. So 20 games left. What does the team do with these 20 games? How do they how do they go about the rest of the season? What is Brad Stevens going to accomplish? You just have to hope that they they play hard. Um, when we get to the end, when we get to April, I'm not sure if we're going to be seeing Rajon Rondo, maybe not even Jared Solinger. I think by then that's when you're going to be start to seeing Chris Babb, Chris Johnson, maybe another NBDL guy they bring in. Usually by then, that's usually the hidden tank season. And they also don't want to be getting in any injuries when the games are just completely and mathematically irrelevant. But at the same time, I think especially in March, this very tough March that the Celtics have, and they have some very, very tough games the rest of the month, you still need to see them compete. You still need to see these young players improve. You still need to see them play within the team and not about themselves, especially some of the free agents they have, i.e. Chris Humphreys. I think that's all that you really need to see the rest of the year. Just just be serious. That's all I'm asking for. Is that too much to ask for? What did you expect this season? Be honest now. I expected exactly what we're seeing. We had Evan Abrams from Metropolitan Sports earlier this year. I think the Celtics over-under for wins was 25. And he and here they are. They're going to struggle to get to that 25-win mark, even though there's there's 20 games left. and They're still they're going to struggle to get there. I think they'll be sort of right around on that number. But the team's playing hard, not all the time, here and there. Now you're starting to see some hiccups, as we saw on Wednesday against Golden State. They did not play hard that night. But I didn't expect anything more than what we're seeing. Prior to the season starting, a lot of people thought the Celtics wouldn't be very good, and they advocated, openly advocated, tanking to get a great draft pick, maybe the number one pick in the draft. And you wrote a recent column for CLNS Radio saying, hey, that just doesn't work. Well, what I mainly put in my column, I don't say it, it doesn't work. I, I certainly 
would like to see the Celtics get the number one pick in the draft, the number two and the number three. I think any Celtics fan would like to see. But I pose the question of it might not even be the best option for the team because right. it it's an option that wouldn't be on the table for them. And that option being that they're going to select a 19-year-old and invest so much into them. Back in 2007, I brought this up, it was probably best that the Celtics got that doomsday scenario that everybody thought that it was back then when they got the five pick in the draft. And the owners, Grossbeck and Paliuka and those and Danny Ainge, they said, you know what, screw it, we are sick of this losing, let's go all in. And they got Garnett, Ray Allen, Pierce, championship Two finals, three conference finals, five division championships, six great years, restored the franchise. So that was the best case scenario for the team. Could this play out again this summer? Could Danny Ainge, say, get the sixth pick in the draft? If they get the sixth pick, I, I don't know. I'm not sure if they would use it because it's all shooting guards or power forwards after Embiid, Wiggins, and Parker, who would help this team because Embiid's a center and Parker and and Wiggins are wings, and certainly with Jeff Green as a team starting small forward, they could use an upgrade there. But maybe it'd be better if they do get the sixth pick in the draft. They trade, they package the pick for a star. Dare we say it, we're going to be talking a lot about his name. From We've already have been talking about his name till the summer. Kevin Love, wouldn't it just be better if this team went all in, got Kevin Love, and prepared him with Rondo? and then still had enough pieces left over to maybe get another star, maybe not this year, but maybe the following year, and start competing for championships sooner rather than later. Next year, LHR, next year, do you see it as a big year for the Celtics or a bridge year? Danny Ainge said in an interview with Kyle Draper, who we had on this show two weeks ago, I believe with Rich Conti, he said that regardless, regardless of whether his team wins the lottery, regardless of whether his team trades for another superstar to pair with Rondo or another superstars, he wants to see substantial improvement in 2015. And I would agree with him. Even if this team was somewhat similar next year, maybe with not Chris Humphreys and or Brandon Bass and then one of the draft picks, or then maybe you know some free agents to sort of end the roster, regardless substantial improvement for this team next year is a must because Sollinger, providing he's not one of the pieces traded, Sollinger should hopefully make another leap. And then some of these other young players like Olenek can become really steady rotation players and become consistent. And at the very least, then I think you can start talking about 35, 36, maybe, maybe even 40 wins next year something like that, and challenge for a playoff spot. I think worst-case scenario for this team next year is substantial improvement. They're competing for a playoff spot. They're playing hard. You can't say playing hard every night. It's 82 games. Nobody plays hard every night in the NBA. But playing hard most of the time and competing next year, competing for a playoff spot, I think that is the worst-case scenario. And, it, yes, a bridge year. And I think best-case scenario is they – Make make another big blockbuster move, and they're a team that's playing relevant NBA basketball next season. Rory really said thirty six wins. <laughs> yeah, I I was I I rolled my eyes, and I I told him on the show last week, which we were which was on March first, and I said, Matt, nothing for nothing. I'm looking at this schedule right now. Two and a half wins for the entire month, and this is a brutal, brutal month for the Celtics, and right now, I think the over-under at two and a half, it's close. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure where you'd go on that. Yeah, 36 wins, I think most Celtic fans at this point would take 26 wins. I think, that, sadly, most Celtics fans would take the 20 wins they have right now. You, you see a lot of fans in the online communities that want them to lose every game the rest of the season, but... You know, so, we'll see what happens. Like I put in my column, like I wrote in my column, Ty. I think no matter if you're rooting for this team to lose games, or you're rooting for this team to win games and play hard. I think everybody is rooting for the calendar. Let's just get this out of the way. And it's been a horrible year for the Celtics. We can admit that, as far as wins are concerned. But it's been a great year for the NBA, as you discussed with the NBA TV's Brent Barry. Brent Barry is one of my favorites. Yeah, he's such a legitimate person, especially when you meet him. And I love the Barry family so much. I never really got to, to meet Rick, but I know you've spoken to John on this show, and we're going to have Brent on the show coming up soon. 
they're just they're real. They are who they are, and it's it's great to see Bones doing so well at NBA TV right now. And as you said, yes, terrible season for the Celtics, but it has been a great season for the NBA. This MVP race is incredible. LeBron James, Kevin Durant, they're both having all-time seasons. As of now, they both have PERs over 30. That's just remarkable. So you have you have that to watch every night. The playoffs, the first round is is you like to skip that. You can't wait till you get that over with. But once you get past that first round, especially when you get to that Eastern Conference Finals with Indiana and Miami, you have that Western Conference, that ultra competitive West: Portland, Houston, Los Angeles, San Antonio, and Oklahoma City. Who comes out west? We're going to see LeBron and Durant in the finals. Who knows? You are so right, LHR. Well. The Celtics at times this year have been downright unwatchable. The NBA has put on a great show, and I can't wait to hear from Brent Barry. Well, hey, let's uh, not waste any more time, and uh, let's get right to it. All right, we're here with NBA TV's Brent Barry, uh, 1996 slam dunk champ. You know, more importantly, two-time champion with the Spurs. And was it 05 and uh, 07? Maybe should have been a Western Conference champion in 2008 had they called a foul on Derek Fisher on when they... Loved you on that three-point shot, Brent, but, uh, you know, a pretty successful career. Well, I I would say absolutely yes. Uh, playing 14 years in the NBA, very blessed to do so and not having any major injuries. But really the one I missed out on is putting on the Celtic jersey possibly in 2008. There was an opportunity to get to Boston and talk to Danny and would have been a lifelong dream fulfilled. But, uh, you know, other things were pressing at the time and it's unfortunate I didn't make my way to the Northeast because I've always loved the way that my name sounds when I'm when I'm back east. The Barry instead of Barry sounds way better. How do I sound it? Barry is that is that good? way better? Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm used to. I was born in New York. My, my dad was playing for uh, the Nets at the time, and I've, I've got a east. I got a little East Coast in me, so whenever I hear Barry, I, I feel like I'm in I'm in the right uh, area code. That's actually pretty good to hear because discuss this with you in the past. You know, the Celtics, are just they weren't good to the Barry family, unfortunately. So still, but, you know, but now you're in media. You've actually been doing it for a few years. I remember when I first met you a few years ago, you first started out uh, at NBA TV. And now uh, you're kind of like one of their big guns. And so that's why, hey, that's why we get you on the show. So talking about this Adam Silver, you know, it's begun. We've. We've discussed it a lot on the show. It's we're basically a, over a month in already. Is I'd love to say time flies, but it hasn't. It's been a tough winter. So I'm going to ask you, give me you know your number one suggestion for Adam Silver. However, I'm going to give you a little caveat here. You can't say I want a team in Seattle because I know that's what you're going to say. You know I'd go there first. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I knew that you're yeah. going to say. Which I know we talked about. Uh, you know the, the the draft eligibility, maybe even tweaking the playoffs. So that's far fetched. But what's sort of your number one suggestion for the new commission? You know, I, I really do enjoy, and I don't like the term that's being thrown around this year with the with the tanking aspect. Uh, this this is not new to the NBA about teams uh, finding. Um, finding some mediocrity throughout the season and then deciding at some point that to improve their draft position, they're going to develop some young players. It's been going on for, uh, for many, many moons, but I do like the fact that, and there's, there's plenty of chatter and some talk about how it is that maybe the draft selection or at least the, the draft process and positioning could possibly change, uh, for teams. I know, you know, Michael's Aaron pitching the idea about the wheel assigning the 31st round picks is, has come up, and that's really interesting. So that uh, you know, teams that have a run of success can also benefit from from younger players coming in. And you're not always uh, handcuffed by your success, but that actually you know there'll be some years where you could bolster your lineup through the draft, and and you don't lose out every season because you're having great success during the regular season. Uh, but the idea about the system being a little bit more weighted, uh, not so much that the the worst team has the best chance. Um, but that once teams are eliminated from the playoffs, that there could be a, a positioning uh, at that point where teams can move up in the draft uh, by better play. So I, I am uh, I am excited and, and pretty much uh, enthusiastic about the fact that Adam Silver is exploring these uh, possibilities and thinking about the draft for, for the way the competitive balance in the league um, potentially could be come June every year. It would make it a lot more exciting, that's for sure. 
But what some of the detractors have said about that, say obviously a team like Los Angeles is next in line um, a year down the line, and Charlotte has the number, say it's, I don't know, 2030. And in 2031, the Lakers have the first pick, and there's this LeBron James, Tim Duncan-like talent that could come out in 2030, but he doesn't want to go play for Charlotte. He's going to wait a year so he can go play for the Lakers. With, yeah. I mean, does that is that not like an issue for you, or is that just now? Well, I, I, you bring up a good point, and uh, you know, if there there are players that uh, started to think that way and, and using the college system, then we have to go and look at what Adam Silver is going to do regarding. Uh, minimum age requirements or at least amount of years that you have to play in school before you're eligible for the draft. Um, you know, that, that's another, a whole nother area to get into, but to think about guys controlling their destiny while they're in college and not coming out because they don't like uh, who it is that's in position to draft them. Like I said, they're not guaranteed to, to, you know, like this year is an instance where nobody's quite sure who the number one pick is. Everybody's talking about how loaded this year's draft is, but because of, who it is that you might need to fulfill a position, you're not quite sure as to where you're going to get drafted. And I would think that uh, college players who have the opportunity to be in the top three or four picks are going to come out anyway. But, um, yeah, that's an interesting point that you bring up regarding guys staying in school because they're not sure they want to play in the cold-weather city as opposed to playing somewhere else. Now, I do want to go back on you know this tanking thing. Um, I mean, there have been obviously some cases in history where we kind of know – I mean, I remember that, you know, the, we had the Rockets back in the early 80s. I think they kind of, like, bagged a couple of years so that way they could get Samson and then even Olajuwon. And that, that actually was really what instituted the lottery was so, right. because the Rockets, I mean, they did what they did. And, uh, you know, you've had ML, ML Carr come out and said that he, when he was coach of the Celtics that year, they were trying to get Duncan that— they were quote unquote experimenting, which I mean, they were. <laughs> I mean, we, I remember that season very well. Um, they 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 were trying to lose games uh, in the efforts to get Duncan. <laughs> Talk to me well, about. Well, I, I think that's yeah. a tricky. That's that's a tricky way to say it, though, Tommy, because that's the thing. And, and Brian Colangelo caused a bit of a stir while he was uh, at Sloan discussing the fact that you know that they were trying to position themselves and that you know, the idea about losing games to better your position does happen. But to say that, you know, they're trying to lose games, there's creative ways to use different terms by saying, uh, we were playing younger players. We were trying to develop some guys. So um, I, I guess the interesting the interesting part about it, psychologically, you got to think about guys on the floor, coaches doing their job, um, and, and trying to you know, get out on the court and compete and do things. But you know in the end that the competitive balance against the opponents that you're playing is pretty much shifted uh, towards your opponent, and the younger players are going to more or less find ways that they're not going to win games as opposed to saying that, you know, we were losing games, we were trying to lose games. It, it just I think that rankles the fans a bit because, you know, the, the idea is that your team's always out there and trying to win, and as uh, players and coaches, that's always uh, the, the idea. Uh, however, we know that you, know, you look at the way the Philadelphia team is set up this year, I would tell you that the team that I played for in Chicago during the lockout season, I had signed with the Bulls. We played a 50-game season. Um, the idea for that season was to try to get as high as possible in the draft. And so we had eight or nine guys on the roster in Chicago post-Michael Jordan era uh, for that 50-game season that did not play in the NBA the following season. Um, so it's hard to sit there and try to say, uh, that the organization wasn't positioning themselves for the draft when you have uh, you know eight players that the next season were putting on uniforms either in Europe or or playing in their local men's league. So it it, it has happened. It it does happen. The the fix, the idea about the, trying to get the fix as opposed to to the fix being in is what Adam Silver um, is listening to, and I'm glad that Adam's open to it and talking about the way they're going to examine the draft process and, and try to adjust it so that um, we don't have this scenario playing out much like it has been talked about all this year about teams trying to position themselves. Yeah, and that Chicago team actually ended up uh, winning that lottery, I believe, that year. I think they picked Elton Brand. It, and then, They uh, ended up grabbing Brand, and, and uh, yeah, I mean, it was a uh, it was interesting how all those things turned out. Unfortunately, I got traded during that off season and made my way to Seattle, but they ended up getting uh, pretty much what they wanted out of that year. And, you know, here's the caveat to all that stuff, Tommy, is that 
you know, Chicago in the, the next four or five years with Elton Brand as the number one pick, it wasn't as if uh, that changed the franchise around. And so, you know, the idea about teams positioning themselves, and this is the other discussion that that happens um, and has happened this season, is that it doesn't guarantee you anything to get the number one, number two pick uh, the way that things have played out, the way the younger players are coming to the league. They're not transforming franchises like they did in the 80s where you had four-year players or three-year players coming out and becoming franchise cornerstones. It just doesn't happen as often. So positioning yourself for, for the first or second pick or the third pick in the draft isn't assuring you uh, immediate success either. No, and I mean, as what we've seen, they have to come into a good culture. I mean, you see, I mean, as you know with the Spurs, I mean, they're developing now. I'm not the, they're not developing superstars, but they're develop, developing almost anybody. A lot of these young kids, they're coming out now at 18, 19, and, I mean, they're asked not only to, you know, play very well, but they're asked to change the culture when that, that, that's something that they're probably not even ready for. Or as opposed to back in the 80s, I mean, they were they were coming to more sometimes more of a program, whereas and they were also 21, 22 years old. Now they're, what, 18, 19, and they're coming into a situation where that it wasn't so ideal, sort of like the Bulls back in the early 2000s where they just – when they um, – did not bring the team back where Kraus uh, got rid right. of Jackson. They didn't bring the team back. They had that lockout year with you, with um, with Tim Floyd, and then they did, they they tried clearing all that cap space. They, they try you know they tried positioning some, themselves to win the lottery, which they did, but it didn't really do much. I remember they went after Kevin Garnett as a free agent when he was really young. It, he, right. he, he didn't want to go there because I mean I, I don't say he didn't want to go there. He, he ended up getting a good deal from Minnesota, but. It wasn't an ideal situation to go to that Chicago team because it was all at the time fringe NBA players and correct besides you, um, <laughs> but so it, it's that you know there's no perfect way to to set up your team to assure yourself of cap space or to set yourself up for the draft. It, it's you know you kind of see how it is that once you strike gold, you try to hold on to it, and when you win, it's a special thing. And if you can keep that winning culture together and keep good character guys together, there there are seasons that you can pile up one after the other that allow your team to continue to grow, and then you fit pieces around those guys as cornerstones. But to to hand pick three guys uh, out of a, a lineup of fifty players and say you know this is going to work, it it just doesn't happen. You know we saw that. In L.A., the Lakers have tried it two different times. You know, the year they brought in Carl Malone and Gary Payton, of course, the team got to the finals, and people think it was a, it was a failure because they didn't win the championship. But with that team being that loaded, there was no assurances of a title, and they were close. But Detroit had something on them in terms of their chemistry and togetherness that that propelled them to win the championship that year. They tried it again, you know, with Dwight Howard coming along, and and things just didn't connect last year with Kobe and Dwight and. Obviously, Steve Nash's injury and Pau Gasol's role under Mike D'Antoni's system and things like that, that that disrupt whatever it is that is the master plan with the guy behind the curtain sometimes. So you got to be you know, a little bit lucky. Um, yes, you certainly have to be good, and, and you certainly have to have some talent, and then you cross your fingers and hope that, that things work out for you. I mean, Chicago was on... Both Chicago and, of course, maybe eight or nine years ago, you could talk about the Portland Trailblazers. There were people in the Western Conference that were just frightened of how good the Portland Trailblazers could have been. Brandon Roy and Greg Oden with LaMarcus Aldridge at the power forward. Uh, you know, Teams were, were shaken in the Western Conference that the power was going to shift to the Northwest and that Portland was going to have this long run, and injuries just absolutely decimated that team. Uh, much like it's happened to Chicago over the past couple of seasons, a team that was thought to be an NBA potential NBA champion and a team that had young guys that was going to grow and and uh, start to maybe uh, make a type of run that Chicago fans had grown accustomed to in the in the 90s in terms of being in position to win championships. And you know, injuries happen, and Derrick Rose's injury has thrown that plan completely out of whack. Yeah, it was even a case with uh, two Chicago's. I remember they had the Rose team, and they even had that team back in the middle of the decade with like Ben Gordon. Everybody thought they'd they'd really do well. But let, let's move on to the positive thing because it's actually been a great. Besides, you know, the criticizing of these teams like Philadelphia and Milwaukee, it's actually been a great season. The MVP race, 
I, I can't remember one this good. I think you probably have to go back to that 88 season, the, the one that Jordan won his first MVP, when you had Bird, Magic, and Jordan at the absolute peak. And Jordan ended up coming um, away with the MVP, and it was actually probably uh, Bird and Magic's, if you look at their numbers. That was probably their career seasons. I can't remember one this this good, maybe Shaq and Nash, but... Not with the years LeBron and Durant are having. Who, who yeah, and I think it's I think it's pretty great, Tommy, that they're they're basically the the same position, and they they carry, um, you know, they carry not not quite the same responsibility, but a bulk of the load for their teams to to uh, perform every night. And the fact that they they do that, both Kevin and LeBron, every night take on the challenge of trying to be the best player on the floor, um, much like Michael, Larry, and. Uh, and Magic before them, um, they enjoy that. That's the competition for them, not playing just the opponent, but playing against the standards that they set. And uh, it's really cool that one happens to be in the Western Conference, in my opinion, and one in the East. I know everybody likes to think about the matchup and seeing those guys play against one another. And, uh, you know, each of them handed each other's team the hat this year in terms of the games on the road, Miami crushing OKC and OKC and Oklahoma City taking care of Miami and Miami, but uh, they're both such tremendous players. They they score in in very different ways, dynamically different ways, uh, but again share the responsibility of uh, of leading their teams and take that challenge on every night. It's kind of it's kind of great, and I love the fact that both of them, in terms of their character, the way they handle themselves, the way they handle that responsibility on and off the floor. That's what uh, is probably one of the better things that every player in the league looks to those guys and how they're handling um, and carrying the torch for the NBA. It's they're in pretty good hands, or at least the game is in pretty good hands with those two guys. Oh, they're playing like all timers. I think LeBron is um, he's he's got a shot really at probably going down as maybe the best ever. But um, MVP, then who, who who is it? Tell me who it is, Bones. Well, I, I think it's still. I think it's still uh, there's still plenty of games to go. We're talking about you know a, a third, a little less than a third of the season to go, with 20 to go. Uh, LeBron made a pretty nice statement with 61 points uh, against the Bobcats, and uh, you know just reminding people about uh, what he's capable of doing. I actually kind of enjoyed watching that game because he just doesn't play selfish brand of basketball, and his teammates and, and coaching staff urging him to to take shots and take over and score the ball. And against all of his will to do that, um, he got himself going, got himself going to the basket, um, and, and took some some shots that really, you know, probably are, fall outside the norm for him. Obviously, the eight of eight from three point line up until he missed two, where he was trying to get to sixty, was pretty awesome as well. Um, but uh, I, I think still, LeBron James is the MVP uh, of of the league. Um, it's going to be tough to, to wrestle that away from him. And Kevin Durant has been just remarkable this year. Uh, so good without Russell Westbrook, the way he just assumed more responsibility with the ball and playmaking and such. But uh, it is a two horse race. And I just, I still have LeBron by a nose with uh, t- with 20 or 22 games to go yet. Yeah. I mean, I, I know he, I know he sort of caught a lot of venom, you know, a few years ago, but, I mean, if I guess even if you do dislike the guy, which I don't really get into this, you know, oh, he's a good guy, he's a, he's a bad guy, because quite frankly, we, we don't, you know, I, I don't know these people or we don't know these people as well. But, I mean, he is just, he's the best player I've seen. You know, I used to be the biggest Bird guy growing up, and I remember in the 90s I used to say, oh, Bird was better than Jordan. It, didn't t- it took me the longest time for me to accept that Jordan was better than Bird. And now LeBron's coming along. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we had that whole Mount Rushmore thing. Do you do you get involved in that, or do do you? Where, if you do, you know, what is yours? Uh, and what, I, I think it's you know the thing about that, Tommy, is that you you obviously Larry Bird would be on your Mount Rushmore as he would with mine. But it's an it's a kind of the era you grew up in. It's it's hard to sit and, and talk about players of a bygone era that we've heard about either in mythical or mystical ways. Um, stories of players in the in the 50s and 60s and 70s that dominated the game of basketball. That unfortunately for us, uh, there's no way to, to to see that anymore. Footage is lost. There's no way for us to understand uh, the atmosphere around the game at that time or how the game was being played. And so, 
this generation of of fans and and people who followed the game for the last ten years, they they don't have a great grasp on, you know, the greatness of the players who have come before them. Even current players don't understand, you know, how great the great ones have been for uh, for decades before them. And so it's it's really hard when somebody puts you on the spot and asks you a question about, okay, give me four players of all the players who have ever played, of all the greatest that have ever laced up shoes, and tell me who it is that you like. It's a very personal decision. It's kind of like art. You know, we, you and me can walk into a museum, and there can be uh, one piece that we absolutely agree on that we say, you know, this is this is an incredible uh, uh, piece in, in painting that that. Uh, blows us away and then you know in the rest of the gallery there might be a lot of stuff that i I think is kind of crappy and um i'm not really uh, feeling and there might be some stuff that you really enjoy but um it's it's art and it's kind of who it is you watch growing up and and who it is you enjoy and who speaks to you as an individual as to how it is that you would relate to those players so i'm not mad at lebron for his four it's his opinion those are his choices as we all have ours yeah, I mean, it's also, I mean, two different things, too. When he when he said that Bird, Magic, and Jordan were the quote-unquote three easy choices, I'm not sure if he was saying that those were the three best players of all time, although you can make that case. But at the same time, right. they're sort of like the holy grail of the NBA in terms of what they did for the league, yeah. more as opposed to, I mean, their actual places. I mean, if it, Bird is a better player than Russell, I'm not sure. Say, uh, even Bird is a better player than Kareem, I'm not sure, but... In terms of what those three guys did for the game, in terms of Magic and Bird bringing it to the national level, and then Jordan in the '90s bringing right. it to a global thing, and, and the and the players before that, Tommy. I mean, obviously, you know, the, the the players growing up in the '60s and the things that they had to, to deal with in terms of race relations. Um, you know, plenty of players in the '70s who watched what those players went through would tell you they're the greatest. And it might not be what they did on the floor; it's about the way that they changed some of the social dynamics around the game and what was going on that speaks to them you know it's not about what they did in terms of passing the ball or putting the ball in the basket it's about you know pushing through and breaking through walls on a on a social level that makes them great players to them so you know again it's a it's a personal choice um it's a choice about timing and it's a choice about era and uh it certainly caused a lot of great discussion for for people um to think about who it is that they they would put up on something like that i know that i would just need a bigger mountain if I could get more than four faces, I might, you know, just choose the whole Rockies and put a bunch of guys up there. Right. Hey, they're already there's a there's all you can always ask some right wingers. They'd always tell you we need we need to have room for Ronald Reagan on the in Rushmore. So who knows? Maybe <laughs> yeah, the right. Rushmore fifteen years could be five guys. All right. I know you're running out of time, and this is a Celtics show, so I got to ask you one question about the Celtics for sure. So obviously they're going through that tough season, but. I mean, a lot of Celtics fans and, and the feeling around, even in the media, use the Boston media, they love to get on the teams when they're not doing well. But there's this, there's really this sense of, oh, the Celtics, not too long before they're going to get back and, 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 be, and be contending to where they want to be. Where do right. you think they stand? Do you compare to these teams, like, say, that are at the bottom, the Lakers, uh, Philadelphia, Milwaukee, Orlando? Do you think that they're, uh, you know, maybe one or two years, they're kind of going to be right back at it, like a lot of people around here think? Well, I think that Danny is, you know, a, a pretty, pretty bold thing in terms of the hiring of Brad Stevens, and I think that that's where it begins and ends for Boston for for this year. Um, the the idea that that Brad Stevens as the coach for the next five seasons after this one uh, will have a, a grand opportunity to head up the team, and I think that that probably in the beginning of the season, Tommy, and maybe I'm wrong because I'm not in the Northeast. I just get to read things about what the Celtics are doing, and I have a buddy from Rhode Island who won't stop calling me about the Celtics every time they play, um, is the fact that there's a lot of people that put faith in two people in the Boston Celtic organization, and that's behind Danny Ainge and his uh, um, his acquisition of all these draft choices over the next few years and what he's going to do with them potentially, and then the hiring of Brad Stevens, and that's the second guy that people point to and think that you know he is the right guy for the job and um, that with those two guys they're going to make the proper decisions in the next couple seasons to get the team back competitive first um, and then be in position to use all those assets that Danny has been able to acquire and, and finally moving on from the KG, Paul Pierce, Ray Allen era to get them in position in three or four seasons um, after Miami has had their, their run and, and maybe Indiana that they could be one of those teams that right, that's right back in the mix. That's the hope. 
All right, last question before I get you out of here. I know you're running out of time. Now, I know you're a Spurs guy for sure. Going to put you on the spot. Give me your finals matchup. Well, I think, you know, Oklahoma City, obviously in the West, Oklahoma City, San Antonio, and the Clippers um, are, are the three teams that have a chance coming out of the West. And, you know, Doc Rivers, the great job that he's done so far this season, the the best part of the season for him is coming up. He's got a tremendous challenge assimilating uh, Big Baby, who's just come in, uh, grabbing Danny Granger, who's just come in, trying to get J.J. Raddick hopefully back on the court for him. But to get all these players moving and shaking and going in the right direction, uh, that team just is a, is dangerous and uh, I, I think potentially could could be there in the end. Um, I would say Oklahoma City with uh, Russell Westbrook having to get back into his game shape uh, is going to be close, but there's still some areas uh, Karan Butler may address some of those offensively that I'd like to see them be a little bit more consistent. Um, San Antonio never kills themselves. They always put themselves in position, but I just don't know how complete they are uh, this year, and uh, they're going to be in the mix. But I I really have a hard time uh, going against OKC, maybe breaking through uh, this year and, and taking care of things the way that Kevin Durant has played. I like the way that they're, they're shaped up, and I like the addition of Karan Butler. I think that brings them some added confidence in the stretch run. Uh, but in the East, I still think it's Miami's to be had. I know Indiana's got a great team. They've got a deep team. They've done a great job defensively. They're getting it done. But I, I like to see if Miami really wants that home court advantage. I really think that deep down they feel like they have to have it, given what happened to them last year uh, in Game 6 and Game 7, being on their home floor and winning. I think they know how important that is to Indiana, and that can really take some of the heart out of Indiana because they're so dead red set on getting the home court um, so I'm, I'm going to, th- I'm going to say that it's Miami and OKC this time around, uh, with the Clippers and, and obviously San Antonio chomping at the heels in the Western conference. Well, I can't say I disagree. I, I feel that's sort of, that, that's, that's who I got in the finals as well. I think Miami's sort of that they're the, I think they're the 93 bulls. I don't think that this is the, you know, the Indiana is like, you know, the 88 Pistons or the 91 bulls are going to break through. I think Miami still got that one more left in them and, yeah, I agree. I think Oklahoma City. All right, uh, Brent Barry, NBA TV. You can follow Brent on Twitter at Barry a three. That's spelled out T H R E E. So for me, L H R, the most surprising thing that came out of that conversation with Brent Barry was the fact that he was almost a Celtic in 2008. I had no idea. No, I actually remember that pretty well. Um, if you remember back in that season, everybody wanted to play for the Celtics. So there was that uh, all year. It wasn't, you know, just picking up Cassell um, during the buyout season. It was all year Sam Cassell talk. I remember Bill Simmons started it as almost as soon as they traded for Garnett. So when that buyout season was happening and, and Brent was a buyout himself, he was, he was traded to Seattle, I believe. And Seattle was uh, stripping down as they were moving to Oklahoma City, so they didn't have any use for him. He was traded to Seattle. I think it was for Kurt Thomas. I'm not sure. I'd have to check on that. And so he was bought out. And, yes, there was talk about him coming to the Celtics. And so, you know, when I met, first met Brent about four years ago now, I remember actually talking about that, and I asked him, hey, how close were you to coming to Celtic? You know, was that just you were interested? He goes, no, no. No, I was very close to becoming a Celtic. Um, that was something I always wanted to do. And I, I actually said, boy, geez, that's funny. I said to this him in the interview because I said, the Celtics haven't treated the Barrys very well. Uh, <laughs> you know, when you go back to John, uh, he was drafted by the Celtics and he never got a contract from Dave Gavitt or they're they going back and forth on years. And then um, lesser known was Scooter Barry, the other brother. He, I don't, I don't think he ever got to play in the NBA, but I believe he was like the last cut back in the early 90s or late 80s for the Celtics. And they kept Charles Smith over him, who, as we all know, I think he had the DUI manslaughter. So there's been bad, some bad, uh, bad luck with the Barrys and the Celtics. But no, Brent, Brent always had interest in putting the Celtics jersey on. But I, I think he just had family in San Antonio at the time, and also, hey, the Spurs were, I think, the third best team in the league at the time. So it wasn't like he was going back to some chopped liver. Actually, LHR, the only name I remember, I didn't remember Barry. I remember Reggie Miller's name being tossed around at that time. 
That that was in the off season though. This was during the season. This was in March of 08. This was right after the trade deadline. Fascinating discussion you had with Barry about tanking. And it's real. It's very real. And he expressed that during your conversation. Yeah, it's very funny because when you spoke to John Barry about a month ago now and you asked him about, hey, about tanking, he said, no, that doesn't happen. And Brent said the same thing in that the players and the coaches, no, they're out there to win games 100%. But what Brent was saying is that it sort of comes from management, right? And Brian Colangelo, as we all know by now at the Sloan Conference said back I think in 2012 I deliberately tried to put a team on the floor that wasn't going to do too well and Brent mentioned the Sixers this year I was it's just pretty obvious Philadelphia giving away any of their decent players for second round draft choices just so that way they can field a bunch of NBDL players and they can lose as much as possible. And Brent even specifically mentioned a team he played on, the 99 Bulls, which was the team right after. That was the Tim Floyd coach team, right? Yes, that was right after Krauss got rid of Jordan. He didn't bring that team back. Jordan, Pippen, Jackson, Rodman, and all those guys. And Brent said it, and I think we all knew at the time, well, even Krauss thought so too was they had to get a high draft pick or high draft picks. And they actually ended up winning the lottery that year, as I mentioned in the interview. They, they won the lottery. They picked Elton Brand, who only lasted there, I think, three years before Krause said, oh, you know what, I'm not going to go anywhere with Brand. Let's reset the whole thing again. Let's deliberately try to lose more games again. So they traded Brand for, I think, the draft's rights to Tyson Chandler. They picked Eddie Curry. They were terrible again the following season. They got the two-pick in the draft. So you're making a great argument here, Larry, against not tanking. Uh, yes. I, it, it, it's very rarely worked. As I mentioned in my column, everybody mentions the Oklahoma City uh, situation. That's the, that is the exception. That is not the norm. You have to, it's better to almost get good as soon as you can and then build on that. Because there's so many instances in history where how many times were you looked at some of these teams, like the, the baby bulls that Krauss built that had Kirk Heinrich and, and Luol Deng and Eddie Curry and Chandler. Now, we all laugh at these names now, like, oh, yeah. But how, I wrote this in my column. People are ready to print all the championship banners in the world for that Chicago team. How about when Golden State, back in the early 90s, when they got really lucky in the lottery that year, when uh, Hardaway and Mullen and the run TMC guys got injured, they moved up in the lottery to – and then they traded up to select Chris Webber. And that rookie season of Webber, they played a fun series against the Phoenix Suns in the playoffs. They ended up stealing Latrell Sprewell in the draft, and they had Sprewell, Webber, uh, Mullen, and Hardaway, who were kind of injured at the time. That kind of blew up in their face. So you you got you to gotta build a winning culture. Brent says it. You talked to John Barry. He said it. You've talked to Antonio Harvey on this show. Rich talked to Quinn Buckner. Every single former player has stated that it's just something that really doesn't work. Well, I even have my own personal story. I covered the Nuggets in 2002. That won, that team won 17 games. It was coached by Jeff Bizdelic. It was a mess of a team. Kiki Vandeweghe said to me he would have selected Darko Milicic had the ping pong balls bounced a certain way. Now, the Nuggets got lucky, right? They ended up taking Melo and not Darko Milicic. Could you imagine what that would have done to the Nuggets for the last decade had they taken Darko Milicic? What, and what has Melo done, done for the Nuggets the last decade? They, they have one Western Conference Finals appearance to show for it. So, Correct. So, Correct. And, and I mentioned this in my column, too. Everybody loves to fantasize about Kevin Durant in a Celtics jersey. However, they were, if the Celtics had the number one pick, odds are they were picking Greg Oden, Right. Odds are they were picking Greg Oden. There were so many Greg Oden guys in that organization. Danny was a Durant guy. I'm not sure if he was a Durant guy 100% over Oden, but I'm not sure he would have overruled his Durant selection over Oden. If the Celtics had selected Greg Oden, oh, my goodness, I'm not even sure there'd be a team in Boston anymore. There'd be no one caring about the Celtics because people forget how irrelevant the Celtics were back in 2007 in this city. They were nothing. They were the New England Revolution. They needed to win, and they needed to win fast. Thank goodness they did. So 
same thing for this. Just like you can say, can you imagine if the Nuggets picked Darko in 2003? Could you imagine if the Celtics had picked Greg Oden in 2007? It would have been an absolute disaster. Who knows where we'd be right now? Who knows where this organization would be right now had they taken Odin? You're, you're so right about Danny that. Danny would be out of a job, likely, as unfortunate as that was, right? I mean, he, would, he was already five years into his tenure as a GM. Had Odin not worked out, it probably would have been three, four, five more years of losing at the bottom. And the organization would have had to hit the reset button again. Well, that's why prior to the season starting and everybody was bringing up the tank talk in, in Boston, I was so against that chatter because the evidence isn't in favor of tanking. It's just not. It's about creating a winning culture. And say what you want about this year's Celtics team, and at times it's certainly unwatchable. At least I think we're seeing signs, not to get back to the Celtics as, team as a whole, but I think we're seeing signs of a culture being put in place by Brad Stevens. I think. Yeah. Um, well, <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure about that. I, I, I think it's more you hope than you think. Uh, it, so. It's worth thinking on my part. But what I see is a team that usually gives a great effort from time to time. But now the team is so patchwork, I, I have no idea what to expect from night to night with this Celtics club. Now, getting back to your discussion with Brent Barry, he still feels LeBron is your MVP for this season. Not Durant. Yeah, when you interviewed John Barry a month ago, he said, and I think I agree with I agree with him one hundred percent on this. Yeah, you can give it to you give Durant MVP, and I think you got to give Durant a lot of credit for carrying that Thunder team when they were missing Westbrook for so long, and they're they're right at the top of the Western loaded Western Conference, and Durant is having an incredible season, a thirty per. That's just that's historic. But even if Durant wins MVP, just like John Barry said. LeBron's still the best player in basketball. It's the same thing with Jordan back in the 90s. You know, you saw Karl Malone win an MVP one year, and that really, you know, PO'd Jordan in the finals that year, and he really took it out on him. And I think Barkley won an MVP. Same thing a year uh, Jordan met Barkley in the finals. It didn't matter those guys won the MVP. Michael Jordan was still the best player in the basketball, and that's pretty much the case with LeBron. Am I correct? So what do you think will be the final determining factor in who's the MVP this year? Is it going to be sheer numbers? They're neck and neck. If you look at their efficiency ratings, it's just incredible. I'm watch, you watch LeBron. I have more of an affinity for watching LeBron's James, LeBron James's game. It's just more complete. It's more all around. It's, it's, it's basically more like a Larry Bird game with the passing and, and the ball handling. But... Neck and neck, statistics-wise, they're pretty much right on top of each other. I think if Oklahoma City gets that number one seed in the Western Conference and Miami does not pass Indiana for home court advantage in the East, I think you'd find it hard-pressed to take the MVP away from Kevin Durant because he was missing Westbrook for so long, and he was doing it by himself, and he had such an incredible stretch, especially there in January, really carry the team, and he put him on his back. And to have that team as the number one team in the Western Conference, I think that's the epitome of most valuable, if you ask me. But Why? LeBron is still the best player in basketball. Why do you think that Westbrook and Durant are having such a tough time adjusting? Well, they're, they're two ball-dominant players. But yeah. I don't think – they might have a tough time adjusting now. They've – they're not playing as well as they were last month. And they're, I think they're just adjusting now because – uh, Westbrook's coming back, but come playoff time, th they'll be fine together. They were fine together a couple of years ago in the playoffs or when they made their run to the finals. They're still a young team. And, and, and Bones talked about this in the interview, and I agree with him too. He picked Oklahoma City and Miami for the finals. I think that's what we're going to see. So. With LeBron, LHR, do you think it's a matter, of course his game is much more complete. He's won previous MVPs. Do you think it's because he's a much more physical, dominant player is, a, is another reason to give him the nod? Just given the eye test, when you watch the two play, LeBron dominates in so many ways, whereas Durant does not. You know, it's funny. I remember in terms, when I think of LeBron, I, I remember being back at a BC football game um, to go see Virginia Tech, I think like 2000. I think it might have been 99. 
and Michael Vick was quarterback, and he had all these incredible runs, including one, like, 75-yard run. And my dad said to me, like, God, it looks like he's running his three-quarter speed, and everybody else is running full speed, and he makes them look in slow motion. And that's how Bobby Orr, and he said, and he would say to me, and that's how Bobby Orr used to play hockey. He'd skate around effortlessly at his three-quarter speed, and he looked like he'd be running around in circles. And that's sort of like when you watch LeBron. It's just so effortless in the way he's just so fast. And you yeah. have to be there at the games to see how fast he is and how, and how he makes everybody else look so much slower I've never than seen- he does. I've never seen him in person, LHR. So tell me what that experience is like. Well, when you're there close and you just, you, you, you see the look, not just like the quote unquote, the look in his eyes. And I always go back to the psychologist, Daniel Kahneman, in his book, Thinking Fast and Slow, that the eyes are the window to the soul. And you can see the look in his eyes when you're at the game. But when you are that close and, and, and you watch him just right, I mean, he, he he's so much just, bigger than everybody else and he's just infinitely faster than everybody else and he makes everybody else look like they're running in slow motion it's it's men amongst boys out there (laughs) and yet there's so many people that don't like lebron he certainly has his haters i think that might actually work in durant's favor this year it's just people are tired of giving the mvp award to lebron james yeah, don't don't get me wrong. I mean, when I see those silly commercials of him running with the kids, you roll your eyes. But I I don't get into the oh I just don't like LeBron thing. You just you really have to watch him play the game and just sort of just shut everything else out and forget that he might you know he's not the greatest guy because at the same time, as we all know, with Larry Bird wasn't the greatest guy. We all remember a famous sixty minutes episode that we had to watch. We all know that Magic Johnson and Michael Jordan certainly have their infractions. Just because he's not a great guy, I, I, I don't go for that. You watch him play; he's he personally he's the best player I have seen. I mean, maybe that's just because I'm biased. Because when I was growing up in the '90s, I used to always put down Jordan and say, "Oh, Bird was better," and it, and it took me forever to accept that Jordan was better than Bird, but. Now, skill-wise, and then just his God-given abilities, LeBron, is he's the best basketball player I've seen. Now, looking at Kevin Durant, he can look effortless out there, too, but in a different way. Does he take uh, a backseat because people don't really see him as a physical player? No, he doesn't take a backseat at all. He just takes a backseat because he's playing at the same time as LeBron James. Durant himself has a very good chance of being a top 15, even top 10 player of all time. It's just LeBron is could very well be the best player of all time and is likely going to be a top five. And I hate to say this on a Celtics show, is probably going to replace Larry Bird as the starting small forward on the all-time NBA team. Wow. Now, LeBron's place in history is cemented, according to you. You said probably replaced Larry Bird. At that position, all time. Those are big words, Larry. Yeah. Oh, hey, I hate to say it. Like I said, growing up, I used to just argue with everybody in the, back in the 90s that, no, Bird was better than Jordan. I'm, I'm as big as Bird a fan as every, anybody. But it's just, hey, I, I, you watch LeBron. I, I, I'm mesmerized. I can't. I've never seen anyone this good. So do you buy that he's not clutch argument anymore? The LeBron. Oh, absolutely not. I think that game against the Celtics, uh, the game game seven of the NBA Finals last year, he had thirty seven points. And I never really bought it anyways. Um, did he have a bad series against the Celtics in two thousand ten? Yes, but didn't uh, you can you could go find plenty of series that the all time great players have played and point and single and pointed at them. Larry Bird against the Lakers in the finals that year in eighty five when he hurt his hand getting in a in a bar fight. We was pretty poor against the Lakers but I mean LeBron he carried an atrocious Cleveland team to the NBA Finals when he was 21 years old and he had that incredible game against the Pistons where he single-handedly won the game scoring 25 of his team consecutive points for his team so I I I I never really bought that argument no and now the last few years you can't buy that argument in fact he might be quote-unquote the most the most clutch player in the game LHR, I've got to ask you because you and I haven't spoken since the whole Mount Rushmore episode, but Bill Russell had some choice comments to make. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar even came out. What did you think of that whole 
whole commentary there by LeBron around the All-Star game. I didn't get your take on it. Well, LeBron needs to understand when he says that, oh, somebody's got to come off Mount Rushmore when, you know, I replace uh, one of the four. LeBron needs to, and I, I told this to Brent too, hey, all the right wingers in the world these days want Ronald Reagan added to Mount Rushmore. They don't want banging down or taking, you know, the, the, the destruction ball at Teddy Roosevelt's face to put Reagan up there. They want Reagan added. So I don't know why LeBron said somebody has to come down off of Mount Rushmore. I, I, I think, to be honest with you, I kind of like the cockiness there where he says, I'm going to be one of the all-time greats. I, I, I don't understand what's wrong with it. But what I did bring up, bring up to Bones was what I, I think – about the Mount Rushmore, I'm not sure those are the four best players of all time. They, I think they're the four most influential, especially when in terms of Bird, Jordan, and Magic, in terms of what they did for the game. I'm not sure they're the three best players of all time, although I think almost everybody agrees that Jordan is the best player of all time, Jordan or Russell. But you could think of, I mean, I can think of other players as well, but Bird, Johnson, people forget when they came into the league, this league was on life support. So we may not even be talking about LeBron James if it's for those two players. If it isn't for those two players. No, and then that's what I mentioned to Barry. What those two guys did for the game at the national level, bringing basically what was just sort of a middle league into basically one of the elite leagues that everybody, not everybody watches, but a huge portion of this country watches. And then Jordan what in the 90s, what he did to make it a, a global game. So... Yeah, it's pretty amazing to think back on LHR. I actually watched that Celtics Rocket series on tape delay. Bird's first NBA Finals. I saw it on tape delay. Think about that. People don't realize that. It wasn't prime time. It wasn't until a few years later that what the NBA finally found its footing and found found its success where it could be a game that well, those guys made it. Hey, th those were the glory days of the NBA. I, mean, I don't think anybody can can say how much they enjoy going back and, and watching 80s NBA. I don't think anything competes with that. Uh, this era, definitely not. Although what LeBron and Durant are doing now, I think they've certainly improved the quality of the NBA. It's certainly a much better product than what it was back in the middle of the decade, or even back in the earlier part of the 2000s during the quote-unquote, I call it the cornrow era. It's a much better product now than what it was right after Jordan or even the middle of part of the 2000s. But I don't think anything's going to beat the 80s and even the 90s. I don't think what we have now is better than the 90s. Fascinating conversation, LHR. Can you imagine if we had had Twitter back then? And Did you notice Twitter, Jared Weiss, our very own, a star on Twitter? Yeah, the Tupac uh, picture and is pretty much everywhere. Bleacher Report, I think I even saw it on a Sports Illustrated's online website as well, which is great because Jared does, I mean, an incredible job with our YouTube channel. He does an incredible job at the games. Jared provides the CLNS YouTube channel with raw, uncut videos inside the Boston Celtics locker room. In HD. Oh, it's incredible stuff. Just go to the YouTube channel, CLNS Radio, the best written, spoken, watch Boston sports coverage bar none. For the best audio video, turn to CLNS Radio's YouTube channel. That's youtube.com backslash CLNS Radio. There are high-definition locker room interviews there, full-length locker room interviews. And, of course, the Garden Report, which is our CLNS Radio HD post-game show on the parquet floor of TD Garden. What are you waiting for? Subscribe now. Well, we're out of time, man. No time for NBA and five lots of great stuff to talk about today but we've talked about quite a bit larry oh nba in five we had uh nba in 30 NBA <laughs> in 35 right so why don't we wrap this thing up that's it for this edition of celtics beat music provided by carlos andres mesa steph lagrato be sure to follow us on social media on twitter we're at celtics underscore beat like celtics beat on clns radio on facebook to keep up with the show We'd like to thank our guest, Brent Berry from NBA TV, and for executive producer and my co-host today, Larry H. Russell. I'm Ty Ray. See you next Saturday at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific for Celtic Speed, only right here on CLNS Radio. Oh!